So last week, we looked at worship uh, specifically from the book of Revelation, and today we're going to talk about our motivation for worship. In other words, why do we worship, if you will? Let's pray. God, again today, as we look at your word and ponder what you would speak to us, we invite you to work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, have your way. Cause your eternal word to go deeply inside of us and change our hearts, and our minds. We, we intentionally open ourselves right now to you and invite you to have your way. Amen. Amen. So why do we worship? Two primary answers to that question. We're going to look at both of those. First, we worship God for who he is. And I'm only going to hit on one aspect of who God is. I mean, we, we could talk about this for a really, really long time of who God is, all right? But we're just going to kind of focus on one. And I'm going to, on each of these two main points, I'm going to go back to the book of Revelation just to keep some consistency with, with what we shared last week. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, this is the, just so you understand, this is the 24 elders, and they're falling down, they're casting their crowns before the throne of God, and they're saying, you are worthy, O Lord, our, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. God created absolutely everything by his power, by his omnipotence. And it's because of that that these folks here in Revelation are worshiping him. They recognize how, how great he is, how powerful he is, and so they worship. It was more than 40 years ago that a man named Robert Bailey said this, we cannot worship rightly until we recapture, as the principal element of worship, the overwhelming sense of awe and reverence in the presence of God. I love that. The overwhelming sense of awe and reverence in the presence of God. See, I think all too often, we have a, an over-familiarity with God. And so we don't really think about how great and mighty He is. But He's not just our big buddy in the sky. He is that, but He's also the all-powerful God. So let's talk about what that should mean for us. Donna just read Psalm 145. I want to look at the first three verses there just real quickly. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Great is the Lord. His greatness is unsearchable. Anybody here old enough to remember Tony the Tiger and Kellogg's Cornflake commercials? Or Kellogg's uh, Frosted Flake commercials, sorry. There, yeah, there you go. Interesting word, great, right, in, in, in our society. I mean, we have the, the Great Lakes, which, by the way, don't include the Great Salt Lake, which I think is odd. We have great prices at stores and online, right? There's the Great Clips hair salons that are all over. We heard uh, over and over, we're hearing today, about the, the, the greatest of all time, the goat, in practically every sport, right? We have great meals at restaurants. Uh, it, it's great when our team hits a home run or scores a touchdown. We have great views at vacation spots. We use that word a lot. We refer to lots of things as being great. And unfortunately, like so many of the, the, the powerful adjectives in our language, it gets overused and therefore it loses its meaning. So when we read things like Psalm 145 and other places where it says that God is great, we're like, oh, yeah, yes. It's true. But that psalm says his, searches, his, his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. That word unsearchable means to be beyond comprehension or explanation. 
The NIV says his greatness no one can fathom. It's way beyond our understanding. So let me try to make this real for you. We think that this planet that we live on is really big, and it is. But go stand on top of the highest mountain in the world on a clear day. And if you're there, visit Leah while you're there, okay? You're just a stone's throw away. But go stand on top of Mount Everest and look out in every direction. And all you'll see from way, way up there, 29,000 feet, all you'll see is a little tiny piece of this huge planet that we live on. It's 25,000 miles around. I, I don't even know what that means. But let's take it a step further. Compare that to the sun. Anybody have any idea how many thousand Earths would fit inside the sun? Wait, you know? Go. Nope. It's 1,300,000. 1.3 million Earths. What? Will fit inside of the sun. That's Well, they would, yeah, but... In that space. That's mind-boggling to me. And I was trying to figure out how to illustrate this, and I, I thought, you know, if I could illustrate it as the, 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 the whole chapel being the sun, but that was still way too huge of a dimension. So I brought along this basketball here. All the kids, they're, they're all gone now. They kept asking me, what are we going to do with the basketball? All right, let's just imagine that this is the sun. Okay, I couldn't actually be holding it. But you have to, you have to understand, 1.3 million Earths can fit inside of here, Okay. What's the nearest planet to the sun? Mercury. Okay, so, so if this is the sun, where do you suppose Mercury is? So right back there by those guys in the back row? No, it's down at the end of the building in that, the, 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 by the glass door. This is 1.3 million Earths, and it's way down there. The furthest planet from the sun, Neptune, now that Pluto got booted, right? You know where Sandy Baptist Church is? Over there, that's where Neptune is. And this is 1.3 million Earths. I mean, this is, this is mind-boggling to me. And I'm just getting started. Because that's just our solar system. There are billions of solar systems in our galaxy, and there are tens of billions of galaxies in our universe. What? How do, I can't even begin to understand that. But what I think is even more mind-boggling is that Scripture tells us that not only did, did the Lord make all of that stuff, we just read that in, in Revelation 4, right? But He also holds all of those things together and sustains them. Colossians 1.17, In Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Can you imagine the, the creativity and the power involved in making and sustaining all things from the, the largest galaxy to the smallest subatomic particle. That's our God. Can you even begin to wrap your mind around such power? And don't tell me you can because you can't. <laughs> At that point, all we can do is just sit there with our mouth hanging open going, this is amazing, our God is great, and not Kellogg's Frosted cornflakes kind of great. He is truly great. Unfathomably great, beyond our comprehension. 
what that verse says in 140, Psalm 145. Let's try me, let me try this from a different angle. The creed that we recite twice a month here, it says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, there's a lot there. I could spend a lot of time unpacking that, but I just want to look at one, one, one aspect. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The, the, the ramifications of that statement are that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that's something we cannot wrap our minds around. Because in our finite material world, you cannot have something be 100% one thing and 100% something else. It just doesn't work. I could take this glass and I could fill it 100% full with, say, orange juice. Or I could fill it 100% full with, say, apple juice. But what I can't do is fill it 100% full with orange juice and 100% full with apple juice at the same time. That is physically impossible. And yet that's what Jesus is. See, God isn't, isn't limited by the, the same things that, that our material world is. He's not limited by the, the finite ramifications of this glass and, and what it can do. He's God. He's way beyond anything. He is 100% full of the nature of God, full of 100% full of the nature of man. How does that work? I don't get it. I really don't. But again, he's God. And see, he could only pay for our salvation if he was God. He could only give us his righteousness if he's a man who lived a perfect life. So he's both. Way beyond our comprehension. So let me bring this back to where we started. See, I believe that our worship is often impoverished because we do not have a clear understanding of what God is really like. You know, if you look throughout the Bible, when people actually encounter God, what do they do? They worship. They, they bow down, they kneel down, they fall on their faces, they worship. And I'm convinced if we got a real glimpse of what he's really like, we'd do the same thing. Songwriter, uh, worship leader Matt Redman years ago wrote a song entitled, Let Everything That Has Breath Praise the Lord. If we could see how much you're worth, your power, your might, your endless love, then surely we would never cease to praise you. And I think he's right. So we worship God for who he is. And again, we're just getting, I'm just hitting one aspect. I told Barb last night, I said, this really should have been like at least four part sermon series instead of two, um, probably more than that. So I'm only hitting one aspect. All I'm talking about is the greatness. We haven't talked about the, the majesty, the holiness, the omniscience. I mean, all of these attributes of God we could talk about. We're just talking about his greatness right here today. And he is worthy of our worship because he is great. But he's also worthy of worship because of what he's done. Revelation again, chapter 5. Worthy are you, sounds a lot like the beginning of the one we read in chapter 4, right? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They're worshiping God because of what he's done. He's, he's redeemed his people. He's ransomed us, if you will. The unfortunate truth is that we have become accustomed to that idea. Far too often for us, it has become not so much good news as old news. I know that. We've heard it before. 
no longer excites us. One of my favorite writers, Mark Buchanan, he said it this way, the most captivating, staggering, extravagant fact in all time and space that God came down, became one of us, died by us and died for us, did it to make us his children and bride, and now walks every moment with us in love and companionship. This amazing truth I can treat as no more important than and forgot as easily as my yearly car insurance renewal. It could become something dull, routine, one more thing to know, do, worry about, one more thing to try to remember. Such a God doing such a thing surpasses all things in greatness and marvel. Nothing even remotely, even vaguely compares with it. Yet the Sunday flyers with yet another 40% off sale on kitchenware at Walmart or the pages with reviews of the latest batch of books or movies can distract me from it. A simple backache can ruin my joy in it. An unexpected car expense can steal away my thankfulness for it. For it, for it. Anybody able to relate to that a little bit? Just like you know, what I said earlier that we need to recapture the, the wonder of who God is, I think we need to recapture the wonder of what he's done for us. Abraham Lincoln said, we have, too, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. You know, especially after we've, we've been a Christian for a while, we think, well, yeah, I, I got this, We're, I'm good. No, you're not. Every one of us absolutely needs his grace every moment of every day. And see, it's, it's not a question of, am I better than somebody else? The real question is, have I ever sinned? You don't have to be a flagrant lawbreaker to be condemned. James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Think about it. Most pr- prisoners in prison, uh, they, they do not... They're, they're there just on one conviction. That's all it takes. And see, that's all it takes for you and me to deserve to be eternally separated from God. And I'm making a big deal out of this because in order to recognize the, the wonder of God's love and grace, I think we first need to understand our own depravity, how bad we really are. A man who is recognized as one of Great Britain's greatest poets ever, Lord Byron, he said that this way, The beginning of atonement is the sense of its necessity that we recognize how desperately we need God's grace, how far away we are. The Bible says that without grace, we're dead in our sins. We're without hope. And yet God reached out in love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He restored us. Author Sam Williamson said it like this, the wonder of the gospel is not the love of the beautiful. It's when beauty kisses the beast. The beast isn't loved because he is changed. The beast is changed when he is loved. Joy doesn't come when he is loved for his beauty. Joy overwhelms him when he is loved in his hideousness. That's the gospel. And I'll ask again, just like I did with with God's greatness, can you even begin to understand how total his love is? And we can't, not really. See, part of the problem is that we too often try to evaluate God's love based on our situations and circumstances. See, we learn from an early age that our value depends upon our performance. As long as we do the right things, say the right things, people love us. If we don't, look out. And we experience that over and over again from from earliest childhood at home with our parents and siblings. 
later on in school with, with fellow classmates and teachers, after school, in social situations, in job situations, even too often in the church, as long as we do the right things, say the right things, people love us. If we don't, they shun us. And that happens over and over and over and over again throughout our lifetimes. No wonder then we take that same mindset into our relationship with God and try to figure out based on situations and circumstances whether or not God loves us. We act like the, the lovesick teenager pulling petals from the daisy. Loves me, loves me not, loves me, loves me not. That is a wrong and unbiblical way of thinking. Think about it. What if the Apostle Paul had thought like that? How many times was Paul run out of town by his detractors? Paul could have easily said, loves me not. He was thrown in prison on multiple occasions. Loves me not. He was whipped. Three times by his own countrymen, he loves me not. He was beaten with rods, he loves me not. He spent a day and a night in the open sea, shipwrecked three times, he loves me not. He was stoned and left for dead. He loves me not. It would have been really, really easy for Paul to have that kind of a mindset. But he didn't. Instead, that same Apostle Paul said, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a pretty all-inclusive list right there, you guys. He said none of those things can separate us from his love. And it's possible you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's great information, Tom. What's it have to do with worship? I think everything. Because that same apostle, just three chapters later, wrote this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, nearly every worship conference that I have ever been at, and I've been at a lot, have, somebody has read this verse. And they especially emphasize the, the, the second part about how we're supposed to present our bodies, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, your spiritual worship. And it's true, we need to do that. But almost never have I heard anybody talk about the first part of the verse, the, the why, the motivation, if you will. I appeal to you, therefore, he's, he's referring back. When he says therefore, he's talking about what he's already said. He's referring back to what he's already, the, the case that he's already built, if you will. So I'm gonna take you on a really, really fast whirlwind tour of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Don't worry, it'll be fast. Romans chapter one talks about God's wrath on unrighteousness. The next chapter talks about God's righteous judgment. The third chapter is where we read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then after that, we're, we're told that, that we're all, through Adam's sin that we're all dead, every one of us. There is this, this piling up of how awful we are, of how we are steeped, we are mired in sin from birth, and how holy and righteous God is. And those two things cannot coexist. But then there's a, a turning, a, a shifting, if you will, in the narrative because it's in chapter 6 that we read, for the wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, we are awful. God is holy. But he loved us so much that he sent his own son, Jesus, to bridge that gap. And because of what he has done, everything, and I mean everything, has changed. Chapter 7 tells us because of what Jesus did that we've been released from the law. Chapter 8, that wonderful chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. Chapter 9 reminds us that Israel was God's chosen, but then the next two chapters talk about how, how we've all been, the, the salvation's for everybody. We've been grafted in, if you will. The, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are the most complete laying out of the gospel message in Scripture. We were corrupt and lost and without hope, but God reached out to us in love. He rescued us from our depravity by his amazing grace. We were bad, he, was good, he is good. We were sinful, he is holy, but Christ's death and resurrection bridged that gap because Jesus, what he did, we can now stand holy and righteous before God. So that's the context, okay? All of that is building back to this Romans 12 passage. In that context, and understanding that case that he's built, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because we understand his mercy, because we understand what Jesus did for us, because of that, do what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's because of what the Lord has done and only because of what the Lord has done that we can come and present ourselves before him in worship. His mercy rescued us and our response is worship. Worship isn't, isn't something that we do to appease God. Worship is our response to what he's already done for us. A friend of mine posted this on Facebook. True worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us, not our pursuit of him. And it's true. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I, I find that very often we as Christians really like this verse. We like especially those first four phrases, which by the way kind of echo some of the things that we re just read in Revelation 5 at the beginning of this section, all right? He says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We like the fact that God has made us those things. And well, we should. But following right on the heels of those four phrases is what in grammar is referred to as a purpose clause. And a purpose clause is put in to help explain what has just been said by what is about to be said. Peter says, we're made all of those things that you may, that you may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies. The NIV says to declare his praises. We've been made all those things that we might worship God because of what he's done. All right, I'm going to give you one final thought here. And this is like, you're going to go, this is a major left turn detour kind of thing. Hang in there, you'll get it. If someone were to ask you about the Israelites in the Old Testament and them suffering 
my guess is that you would probably primarily uh, point them to the, uh, the, the time where, when in uh, uh, Genesis, when they were, they were, or in Exodus, when they were captured, when they were in captivity, all right, in, in Egypt. And that's, that's a good place, but that's not the only time that they suffered in the Old Testament. In fact, during the, the prophetic ministry of Isaiah, the, the, the people of Israel were practically always struggling at that point. Their, their, their neighbors, other nations around them, constant threats from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, others, just this ongoing thing. And you know, if, if I think about that, what, what they were going through, it reminds me honestly very much of what the, the Israelis today in the Middle East must go through. The thoughts of annihilation have to be right there all the time. We could be wiped out at any moment. Peace was not something they had experienced in a long time. And so I'm sure for those Old Testament Israelites, there had to be at times a, a feeling of abandonment, that they were empty, they were destitute, they, they were without hope. Their lives at that point were not a pretty picture. But it was into that spiritually dry time, into those spiritually dry lives, that the words of the prophet Isaiah at one point must have come like a, a powerful spring rain shower. He said this, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That was a word to the Israelites in the Old Testament, but it is an eternal word for you and for me. God is not against us. We heard that earlier in what Steve shared. He is for us. Though we live in a dry and weary land, yet there will be streams in the desert. Though we are sometimes fearful and afraid, yet our God will surely come and save us. Though we sometimes have sorrow and sighing here and now, there is coming a day by the mercy of God when those things will flee away and they will be no more, and we will come there with singing and rejoicing. The God who loves us beyond our imagination has made a way where there was no way. Doesn't that simple fact make you want to worship him? Lord, we are so grateful for your abundant mercy in our lives that when we were dead in our sins you came and rescued us you drew us out of that and put us into your family made us your children made us kings and priests to reign here on the earth lord you are so good and you are great and this day we honor you